But as always, it's good to get back to normality. And for me, though I'm now retired as a full-time pastor of our church, I'm grateful to be invited to preach the Word of God, which I've done for many years, and hope to do for a few more years anyway. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy and grace towards us. We thank you that through the suffering sacrifice of Christ our Lord, we have experienced a change in our lives, brought about by the new birth and the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that the Holy Spirit would sweep through our land, convicting people of sin and righteousness, that you would raise up godly leaders in our nation and in the nations of the world. We pray for our government, that you would impress upon them to make righteous judgments regarding gender and uh, abortion issues that are causing devastating effects in the everyday lives of people. We pray for this generation of young people who are growing up being indoctrinated with these ungodly morals, and that parents who disagree with this downgrade of morality will make their voices heard, and may your church not be silent. May we Christians be light to this generation in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I've heard a lot of people, you might have, when you get talking to them about heaven, uh, life after death, um, and because you're a Christian, maybe they start questioning you. And a phrase I hear a lot is, well, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm a kind person. And they rely on their own goodness to take them to heaven. And rather than uh, turn to Christ, they do kinds work. They might work in charity shops or pursue doing charitable deeds. But they shut Christ out of their lives and think, well, I'm good enough. If there is a God, I'm good enough. But goodness is not godliness. And self-righteousness can't save us. We need a righteousness that saves us. And that's what this sermon's about. If we need to go to heaven, if we want to go to heaven, we need something from heaven. And that is righteousness. It's God's righteousness. So that's what I want to look at, a portion of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, uh, urging them to stand firm in the grace of God through faith in Christ. And as Steve read for us, um, we can go back to earlier in chapter 1, in verses 6 and 12, and Paul wrote, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you received, let him be accursed. I always think it's amazing that the Mormons uh, claim that an angel called Moroni spoke to a uh, a guy and uh, give him another gospel. We think the same about Mohammed, who was in a cave and said the angel Gabriel spoke to him, gave him another gospel. And Paul says, let them be accursed. So, beginning with verse 1 uh, and uh, verse 3, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, basically meaning you unwise Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. 
He's saying, who's fascinated you? Who's enchanted you away from the truth? Who's seduced you away from Jesus Christ? Who we clearly preach to you as crucified. And on receiving him, you receive the Holy Spirit. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, I am now being made perfect by the flesh. What Paul wants to know is why and by who, after receiving the Spirit, are they returning to the works of the law? Why? And who by? He says, tell me. He says, I want to know from yourselves. It's a rhetorical question. He's asking them, uh, meaning that they know the answer to the question. They know they received the Spirit when they heard the gospel uh, and believed with all their heart the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Paul wrote this similarly to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1.13. He says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which Ben spoke about this morning. Um, the gospel is the word of truth. Uh, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You know, we could say, uh, are you unwise? Or colloquially saying, are you daft? Are you stupid? He tells them they're being ridiculous to think that you can be made perfect by the flesh, by being circumcised by these Judaizing false brethren, preaching the law to them, sharpening their knives for this operation. To the men, they'd be preaching, come forward, get circumcised, and then get baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We'll get circumcised first. And this was a hot topic with Paul, having been saved by grace himself. He preached everywhere in all churches against those preaching salvation by works of the law and introducing Judaism into Christianity. In Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 9, he says, Paul said, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. For true salvation is when God indwells us with his Spirit we then adopted into the family of heaven. We're a new creation. And Paul reminds them that the Holy Spirit has been given to them as a sign that God was now with them, that they were secure, that God would never leave them nor forsake them. In Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, he says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We all want a guarantee, don't we? And he's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So you see, the Spirit is a guarantee. We've got a guarantee. And in everything you buy now, you look to see if there's a guarantee with it. But God has given us his spirit as a guarantee. And the Greek word translated guarantee is arabon, 
And basically it means a deposit has been paid by God to Christians until the purchased possession is received. It's like an engagement ring. A pastor was once on holiday in Greece and he passed a, a, a jeweler's shop and he noticed a diamond ring in the window with the word Arabon under it. And so he asked the jeweler what it meant and he said, it's an engagement ring, the Arabon. And the people that Paul is writing to had experienced this guarantee. He says, you've got the Arabon, you're engaged. It's a promise of the Holy Spirit in their own lives. And yet now they're doubting the very promises that the Holy Spirit has given them, that this guarantee, this Arabon, you're mine, you're sealed. And Paul continues with his rhetorical sharp questions in verses 4 to 5. He says, have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed uh, it was in vain. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He says, some of you have suffered many things because you turned to Christ. Was it in vain or not in vain? I think that's true of all Jesus said, and all will be made to suffer for my name's sake. So he says, have you suffered for becoming a Christian? Is it in vain? You know, when you become a Christian, we all suffer in some way. It might be verbal, whatever. It might be family falling out with us, friends falling out with us. He says, you've witnessed miracles amongst yourselves. And he may be meaning their own miraculous conversion. I always regard when I became a Christian that a miracle had happened in my life. Or they could be meaning the miracles that were done through the Apostle Paul as he preached through the regions of Galatia in Acts 19, 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. But these were done by faith, not through the works of the law. And Paul wants to convince these Galatians and each of us that from our own personal experience, we should know without a doubt that God has come to dwell with us. Not because we've kept the works of the law, but because we have faith in the crucified and risen Lord. We've been born again of his spirit. And he tells them that they should know this, it's the inner witness. And I think every true Christian has the inner witness. You have the witness in yourself that you're saved, that you've received the Arabon. And in 1 John 5.10, John wrote, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. And if you're a Christian, you'll know what I mean. You have the witness in yourself. God indwells us with his Spirit as proof that his righteousness is imputed to our lives through faith in his Son. You have now a righteousness that isn't your own. It wasn't your own. It didn't come from you. In verse 6, it's just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul's quoting from Genesis 15, 6 to prove his point. Um, these legalists had declared that a person couldn't be saved unless he or she kept the law specifically for the men, the Lord of circumcision. But Paul points out that Abraham was given the gift of righteousness of God prior to the act of circumcision and prior to receiving the law. 
the Lord didn't come till 400 odd years later with Moses. So there was no circumcision then, there was no Ten Commandments then, but Abraham was declared righteous before any of the law. And the same is true for all of us. We receive the righteousness of God himself, not when we've obeyed any laws, but the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We are instantly made righteous. Verses 79. He says, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham not by obeying the Ten Commandments. They weren't even in existence then. And the means of salvation have always been the same. There wasn't and isn't one way for the people in the Old Testament and another for the people in the New Testament. It's always been and always will be by grace through faith. And we need to understand about this righteousness to help us realize the full significance of it. This righteousness... What I'm talking about is from God. It's from heaven. Our text tells us that God declared Abraham righteous because of his faith, and that in the same way God will declare each of us righteous. The New International Version says that God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness. The New American Standard Bible says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The King James Version and the New King James Version says it was accounted to him as righteousness. But all, they, all they, what they're saying is it has been imputed to us. We weren't, didn't have that kind of righteousness, but Christ did. And just as our Christ did no sins, but our sins were imputed to him, reckoned to him, credited to him, so his righteousness is now imputed to us. And that's the only righteousness that can get us into heaven. Whichever translation we choose, they all mean the same. The bottom line is that God gives you righteousness in exchange for your faith in Jesus Christ. To believe it, as some of the Galatians were being taught by these false brethren, the Judaizers, that their righteousness came from doing good works by keeping the law. It was to deny God's part in granting this righteousness. Paul's letter to the Romans is very similar to Galatians. And he stresses this point in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. He says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So people are declared righteous because of their faith, not because of their works. There are still people who try uh, to be righteous by works of the law. God says... I declare you righteous by your faith in the Christ. But the legalist was saying, oh no, he doesn't. We'll tell you how to get this righteousness. Obey the laws of Moses, get circumcised. And if we claim that God's promise is for those who obey God's law and then think they're good enough in God's sight, then we're saying that faith is useless. And in that case, the promise is, is meaningless to you the promise Romans 4 14 he says for if those who are of the law are heirs faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect if you're trying to earn your way to heaven 
I'm not getting there. The legalist denies the, pro, pro, if I pronounce this, prerogative of God to do as he chooses on our behalf and takes matters into his own hands. They think, I don't, need, I don't need you, Lord, to get to heaven. I don't need that kind of uh, faith, that kind of righteousness. I'll just obey the law. But if God decides, as he clearly has, to declare me righteous in exchange for my faith, who am I to question that? The bottom line is this. The legalist doesn't really have saving faith in God at all because he sets himself up as having faith in himself. You met a lot, meet a lot of people like that. Say, you haven't got enough faith. It's faith in themselves. The Christian fully accepts God's declaration that he or she is righteous through their faith in Jesus Christ. That's saving faith. This righteousness is of God. Though some recognize that they're saved by grace through faith, strangely enough, some people then lead hard over and add legalism to salvation. They begin to misrepresent grace entirely and put doubt into people's minds whether they might lose their salvation. As soon as they see someone break a law, break a commandment, do something wrong, and then people begin to think that they've lost their salvation if they go along with the legalists. We're completely dependent on God's righteousness both to save us and to keep us. And what Paul is emphasizing here to these Galatian churches is that they didn't receive salvation on the base of their own righteousness and they're not kept by their own righteousness. Can any of us who are Christians say that um, we've persevered in the faith because of our own righteousness? No, we, we persevere and we're preserved by God the Holy Spirit. And the gospel truth is that we don't have anything about us that could be called righteous. There is none righteous, not one. And this is, is talking about the righteousness that saves. In fact, Jeremiah says our righteousness is like filthy rags. If we try to present them before God for salvation, they're like filthy rags. We need a righteousness that saves us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's that imputed thing again, you see? Um, our sins were imputed to Christ. He didn't do them, but he, he took them. And we did not have a righteousness that could save us, but we have his righteousness. It's been imputed to us. And then what happens when we receive imputed righteousness we then, we then begin to display imparted righteousness as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and we begin to act righteous. But that's not the righteousness that saves us. That's the righteousness that comes about because we've received the righteousness of Christ. Mr. McLaren and Mr. Gustart were ministers of the Tolbooth Church in Edinburgh. And when Mr. McLaren was dying, Mr. Gustart paid him a visit and put this question to him. He says, what are you doing, brother? His answer was, doing, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm gathering together all my prayers, all my sermons, all my good deeds, all my evil deeds, and I'm going to throw them all overboard and swim to glory on the plank of free grace. That's what God has done for us. 
He's placed his righteousness uh, on my account. He's completely replaced my old record with his new record. You've got a new record now. And, and this is where and how God rescues us from the curse. We're getting into that last bit now where you're talking about cursed is everywhere who hangs on a tree. There's a curse. And all mankind is under the curse. In verses 10 to 14, for as many are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, not by law. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. That's imparted righteousness. And Paul is saying, though the law is good, if you don't obey it perfectly, it's a curse to you. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. And all the people shall say, Amen. He says, you foolish Galatians. By trying to be saved by keeping the law, you're in trouble. Because God says the only way that that will work is if you keep every law perfectly and never break one. If you stumble at even one single point, you'll be cursed. Whoever breaks one of the commandments is guilty of breaking them all. You're under the curse. Why? Because verse 13, 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So it follows that if someone is executed by being hanged on a tree, it's because they've been found guilty of a very serious crime. Hence, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's a punishment for doing wrong. For the sinless Christ, pure and innocent, gave himself as a sacrifice by becoming a curse for them and for us. If Christ had never appeared, all of them and all of us would still be under this curse that Paul speaks of. Because we've all fallen short of God's holy standards and no sin will ever enter heaven. It has to be dealt with on earth. And Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us so that we can enter heaven sinless. The word redeemed was used in the slave market in New Testament times to refer to a slave whose freedom was purchased. And before we became followers of Christ, we were slaves to the curse of the law. We couldn't keep it perfectly. We had no hope. We were sinners and loved sinning. But Christ bought our freedom from the slavery of sin through his death on the cross. Our text says that when he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself our guilt. He was accounted guilty and therefore became the curse for our wrongdoing. And when Jesus was crucified, God the Father looked upon him and saw our sin on his innocent son. He took the curse of our inability to keep the law upon himself, and God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him 
why might we might become the righteousness of God. What an exchange, sin for righteousness. At that point on the cross, we think of that point on the cross, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabathini, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the curse upon him. That was the curse. We're told that the sun stopped shining. The whole of the land suddenly became dark as the wrath of God was being poured out on his beloved son. As he submitted himself for us and he was cursed for us on that cross of Calvary. The darkness was a sign of God's curse on sinful mankind. And it fell on Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems that at that moment, God forsook his son for us. You know, the two thieves who were crucified with Christ were being crucified for their crimes by being hung on a tree. It was a punishment for them. But Jesus was cursed for their crimes. And Paul wants these Galatians to understand if the law couldn't save them and instead brought a curse upon them, and if Jesus took that curse for them at his crucifixion, why on earth would they try to go back to that system of law? He says, you're foolish. Who's enchanted you? Who's seduced you? And that's why Paul begins this chapter with, oh, foolish Galatians, who has enchanted you from grace? You understood the meaning of Jesus Christ's death as clearly as though I'd shown you a video of Christ dying on that cross. He says in, in Galatians 3.1, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed to you as, Christ, as crucified. Clearly portrayed to you. And throughout this epistle, Paul strictly continues with his warning to them, if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ, you've, received, you've refused God's grace. And we'll see, you can later in chapter 5, Galatians 5, 4, it says, you have become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. See, if a person were counting on finding favor with God by being circumcised, we would also have to obey the rest of God's laws completely. Trying to save ourselves by keeping all God's laws only separates us from God. Because as soon as we sin, we've broken the law again. The life application study says about falling away from grace. Paul isn't here questioning whether a genuine believer can lose his or her salvation. He's warning that people who may have once made a profession of faith, if they then seek to be justified by the law, they must not really have had a relationship with Christ and have fallen away from the grace that was offered and available to them. John MacArthur says, their desertion of Christ and the gospel only proves that their faith was never genuine. See, Paul warns them and us, we can either try to live our lives based on our own righteousness, I'm a good person, I'm a kind person, or we can accept the righteousness of God's grace that he offers us freely forever. God has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, an arabon, a seal, 
of his relationship with us, that his love, his righteousness, and his promises are irrevocable. He will not break his engagement. He will not break that agreement. And God has declared that when we trust in his son, Jesus Christ, our sin will be replaced with his righteousness. God has rescued us from the curse of failing to keep the law. What more assurance could we want? If you're a Christian, in this book of Galatians, we should be learning to quit depending on ourselves and learn to trust the promises that God has made to us in Christ, to fully trust them. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you're learning that the deepest need that you have, the need of salvation, can be met by simply placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Not by trying to earn it, your salvation, by doing good works. There's nothing wrong with doing good works. I think being, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, gentleness, tenderness, self-control, etc. They're part of imparted righteousness. Uh, righteousness. Once, you, once you're born again, once you've got that righteousness from God, we then start getting sanctified and acting righteous. I'd like to finish with this poem. It's called, My Grace is Sufficient for Thee. When sin-stricken, burdened, and weary, from bondage I longed to be free, there came to my heart the sweet message, my grace is sufficient for thee. Though tempted and sadly discouraged, my soul to this refuge will flee and rest in the blessed assurance, my grace is sufficient for thee. My bark may be tossed by the tempest that sweeps over the turbulent sea. A rainbow illumines the darkness, my grace is sufficient for thee. O Lord, I would press on with courage, though rugged the pathway may be, sustained and upheld by the promise, my grace is sufficient for thee. Soon, soon will the warfare be over, my Lord face to face I shall see, and prove as I dwell in his presence, his grace was sufficient for me. Amen. Uh, are we singing another hymn? Yeah, we're going to sing together. I chose this hymn especially for that uh, title, um, that Christ's righteousness is through faith in Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.
Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for redeeming us from the curse and bestowing your righteousness upon us that has secured us a place in your kingdom. We pray, Lord, for those we love and know who are not saved and for those who think they're saved because of their kind and good deeds. Lord, we implore you to visit those we love dearly and reveal yourself to them and in them. We pray for all those ministers who preach the gospel to those of the face, that they may turn from darkness to light. Bless, we pray, those who hear the gospel, that you would open their hearts to the righteousness that comes by the preaching of your word. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. 2 Thessalonians 1:11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.